Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Um, it's an honour and uh, a pleasure to be here delivering the discourse this evening, uh, and thank you all for coming along. Well, I spend my time trying to understand how memory works and how the brain supports this crucial function. And I say crucial because memory impinges upon everything we do as individuals and as society. So you have a sense of self, an autobiography, because of memory. You live independently because of memory. And people share a history, beliefs, laws, culture because of memory. So it's hugely important. And this is really laid bare when memory is compromised by brain injury or disease. We fear memory loss, and it's no wonder because the effects can be devastating. And an aging population means that pathological memory loss will increase, as will the effects of normal aging on memory. But before we can intervene in a principled way to try and help to alleviate the effects of memory loss, we really need to understand how the memory system works. And so researchers studying memory um, span many levels, from tiny molecules all the way up to trying to understand how the billions of neurons in the brain are choreographed and orchestrated to be able to support memories. But the truth is, we still don't know how memory works. So what I'm going to do this evening is give you a brief overview of some of the ways that we study memory. I'll then offer you a slightly different view of memory um, that we think is emerging from recent evidence. And then I'll end by giving you a kind of glimpse of where I think the future of memory research is going. Now, the first thing we need to do is to disabuse ourselves of some common notions about memory. So the first of these is that memory is not one thing. There are many different types of memory. So we have memory for short-term items. I don't know if we can see this properly, but short-term memory, and that's things, I used to say it used, was things like phone numbers, but of course, that's all in people's mobile phones now, so nobody remembers any phone numbers. But any kind of short-term piece of information you want to hang on to. And then you've got things like, which are called non-declarative memory, but basically that involves things like procedural memory, so learning how to ride a bike. So once you've learned how to do it, you no longer really think about it. And then we have this set of memories, which is long-term memories. And this can be broken up in a number of ways. So we have things like semantic memory. That's your vocabulary, the facts about the world that you accumulate, and your knowledge base. And then we have these memories. And these are episodic or autobiographical memories. And these are the memories of your personal past experiences. So there's a whole range of different memory types. The second point we need to remember about memory is that it is not an accurate record of the past. It's imperfect, it's fallible, but it's also flexible. And so what it lacks in that accuracy, it makes up for in that flexibility. And in fact, some of the errors that our memory system makes actually improves our experience of the world. So I will give you an example of that uh, later in the talk. The next thing to say about memory is that forgetting is good in normal circumstances. So we absolutely do not want to be remembering everything that ever happened to us, every fact we've come across. That would be far too much information. It would be really inefficient. So we don't want to be doing it. And in fact, forgetting is programmed into the memory system. It's a good thing. Now, when it goes wrong and there's too much forgetting, so it becomes pathological, that's when we need to start worrying. Now, the final thing we need to be mindful of about uh, memory is that it actually isn't about the past. Now, of course, it's wonderful to reminisce on, on past experiences. 
But memory is actually about looking forwards. And people through the ages have acknowledged this. So for example, if we go back to 1798, we have our friend Immanuel Kant who says, recalling the past occurs only with the intention of making it possible to foresee the future. Terry Pratchett says, people think they live life as a moving dot from the past to the future, with memory streaming out behind them like some kind of mental cometry tale. But memory speds out in front as well as behind. And of course, the person who put it most succinctly is the White Queen from Alice Through the Looking Glass, who said it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. So memory is about the future. It's about you learning from your experiences so you can survive when something comes up in the future, you know how to deal with it. So what I want to do now is just run you through very briefly some of the ways that we're, we use to study memory. Because some of these techniques will come up through the talk. So it's just so you have an idea about what um, I'm talking about. And the important thing to remember is that no one technique is perfect. So they all have their strengths and we're seeking convergent evidence across a whole range of different tasks. So the first thing we do is very simple. We test healthy people and we see what their memory is like and the sorts of um, strengths and weaknesses they have and the individual differences in memory. We also test patients with memory problems. Um, and again, we're looking for where what's preserved, what's impaired, and we test people who have focal lesions like here, just a very specific part of the brain seems to be involved, versus things like this, where it looks like there's atrophy throughout the brain. So we're trying to understand how memory is affected by these different types of pathology. And in particular, um, when we look at focal lesions, the idea is that if you find an impairment in the context of what looks like a focal lesion, then many people uh, make the inference that that function depends in some way upon this brain area that's compromised by the lesion. Now, we use um, lots of different scanning techniques. Here's one, it's magnetic resonance imaging. Some of you may have had MRI scans. You can scan any part of the body. Obviously, we're interested in brain. So you go into the tunnel, you keep your head very still, and we get some absolutely beautiful pictures of the brain. We can get 3D pictures running through the whole brain. Um, and so we can have different views of the brain, front on, side on. We can look top down. We can even look at the connections between brain areas now, the connectivity of the brain uh, also. And another thing we can do is look at how memory performance correlates with some of these brain structures, gray matter in a certain area or the type of connectivity. Now we can also um, look directly at function and we can use something called functional MRI. And in very simple terms, this works by the fact that if you use a part of your brain, let's say during a memory task, then the neurons there are going to need to um, be fed energy. And so the blood flow increases to that part of the brain that's being used. And we're able to measure aspects of that blood flow as a sort of proxy of neural activity. And so that's what these blobs are. People are using these particular parts of their brain uh, during a particular type of task. And what we have here is a technique that is really spatially precise. So we can know sub-millimeter where exactly activity is coming from in the brain. But the thing about fMRI is that it's very slow. That blood flow response can take up to six seconds. So there's this delay uh, and a lack of temporal precision. So we typically complement fMRI studies with, sorry, um, 
something called magnetoencephalography, or MEG. Now, you can see the MEG scanner here. It looks like one of those very old-fashioned hair dryers. Um, so you put your head in, keep it nice and still, and within this apparatus are hundreds of detectors. And they're able to measure neural activity directly from throughout the whole brain with millisecond precision. And again, we can have somebody doing our memory task and we can look at the neural activity uh, wherever we want in the brain. It's not as spatially precise as fMRI, but it's much better in terms of capturing the timing. Another way we can study memory is by um, implanting electrodes in the human brain. Now, obviously, we don't routinely do that, but there are patients with usually drug-resistant epilepsy whereby they're being considered for surgery to remove that part of the brain that seems to be causing the seizures. And as part of the workup for that surgery, electrodes are often implanted into different parts of the brain, and you can see some of the electrodes there uh, implanted. And what people, the, the medics are trying to capture seizures, um, but the patients often are sitting around for quite a long time waiting to have a seizure, and they very kindly do some of our memory tasks. So we're able to measure neural activity, even from single neurons, um, while these people are doing some of our memory tasks. So we get a real window on neural activity um, in those cases. And of course, there's huge amounts of work um, involving non-humans and the study of memory. For example, we have uh, some rats in a maze, and we're looking at how exactly they learn uh, various aspects of different tasks. And just like the human patients, the uh, animals can also have electrodes in their brains while they're doing some of the memory tasks. So this whole load of different ways we can look at memory. Now, as I said, there's many different types of memory. And the type of memory I'm most interested in are these personal past experiences or episodic memories uh, that are captured. These autobiographical memories are captured um, in space and time. And they're multifaceted, they're multimodal, they stretch over decades, and they're a key linchpin of our cognition. And some people even believe that they're unique to humans. And so these are the sorts of family occasions, events that punctuate our lives, baby's first haircut, particularly a nice um, holiday in Venice before, obviously, it got unfortunately flooded, but anyway. So these are the memories I'm trying to explain. Um, and what we know from studies using fMRI is that many brain regions are engaged when you're trying to recall the past. Um, and one in particular seems to be very important. And its role, it seems, cannot be replicated by any other brain region. And that's the hippocampus. You can see here it's uh, engaged and activated. We have one on each side. And here it is uh, within the brain. You can see the red there, and that is the hippocampus. And here you can see it again, circled in red. Hopefully you can see it on the MRI scanner. And it is called the hippocampus because the early anatomists likened it to a seahorse. And you can see that it does, when it's taken out of the brain, look quite like a seahorse, and so hence hippocampus. I've already shown you that it activates during tasks where you're recalling past events. And also, we study patients who have got hippocampal damage. If you can see here, this is the patient. The arrows are showing the hippocampi. Here's the healthy control who is nice, juicy, healthy hippocampi. And the patient has more shrunken hippocampi. Now, we first really formally began to understand the hippocampus was important for memory back in the 1950s, thanks to the study of this patient called HM who we now know is called Henry, was called Henry Malayson. And he had, again, drug-resistant epilepsy. 
And they tried to treat this back in the 1950s in Canada by taking out most of both of his hippocampi and areas of cortex around it. Now, it alleviated his seizures to some extent, but it left him profoundly amnesic. And for the rest of his life, he could never form a new memory. And we now know that he also really couldn't recollect many of his past experiences either. Now, HM had a lot of damage besides the hippocampus, but in subsequent cases, um, not due to removal for epilepsy, because that really showed that is not something you should be doing, but people who have damage to both hippocampi for other reasons, sometimes even very selective damage that doesn't seem to involve any other brain regions than the hippocampus, um, you find that they also can't form new memories. This is the patient here, an example patient. And this is where he had his illness. And this is all the way back through his life. And you can see he cannot remember anything that happened to him. So he's been completely robbed of his past. And for that reason, the hippocampus became synonymous with memory. People realized it's so important for memory. And in particular, these cases where there doesn't seem to be other damage other than the hippocampi are particularly informative for trying to understand uh, what the hippocampus does. Now, the hippocampus, unfortunately, is uh, susceptible to uh, a range of common pathologies dementia, epilepsy, stroke, loss of oxygen to the brain. So it is very vulnerable, and so it's very important we try and understand exactly the role it's playing in memory, because it can affect a lot of people if it's not working, if they're not working properly. Now, another way we study memory is in healthy individuals using fMRI activity. But what we've done in recent years is we've noted that you can look at the specific pattern of brain activity in the hippocampus and you can associate it with a specific autobiographical memory such that if you give an algorithm the brain data it can tell you which memory a person was recalling at the time in the scanner this is called decoding and here's some examples so these are some example hippocampi and you can see in this person, we have a very new memory formed about two weeks ago and a 10-year-old memory. And we're able to, if you like, capture the memory trace in the hippocampus for these specific memories using this technique. And excitingly, we can also track memories over time. So here's a longitudinal study where the memory in its blue form there was when it was two years old. We got the people back two years later to recall the memories again, and we're still able to see the memory trace of these specific memories. So I think there's no doubt, given this type of evidence, that the hippocampus is very, very important for helping you recall the past. But then there's this sort of tension because at the time that HM, the patient, was being studied and people were getting on studying autobiographical memory, in the animal world, people were studying rats and they associated the hippocampus with spatial processing. So here, for example, is a rat brain. Here's the rat hippocampus. And people recorded neural activity from the um, hippocampus of the rat. And what they noticed was this. I'm hoping this you'll hear a, a place cell actually firing. This is a genuine cell from a hippocampus firing, hopefully. It's our little cartoon rat. He's going to get very fast. He didn't go that fast in reality. But. Now, what you might notice about this is that the cell is only interested in one particular part of the space. It's not firing anywhere randomly. It likes that portion of the space. And it also doesn't even matter where the rat is looking. That cell 
which is now we know are called place cells, fire in a specific place. And it's almost like it's capturing the memory for that place. And these place cells uh, were discovered by my UCL colleague, John O'Keefe, who won the Nobel Prize for this discovery in 2014. But um, perhaps more importantly, was recently made an honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy. So I'm sure that's top of his CV. So here we have a situation where now we're looking at the hippocampus being involved in space. Other work seemed to substantiate this. So here we're looking at hippocampal volume in a species of parasitic cowbird. Now, why would we want to study them, you might ask? Well, it's interesting because the males and female hippocampal volume in the non-breeding season is much smaller than during the breeding season. So within individuals, the hippocampal volume increases during the breeding season because these cowbirds are out looking for mates, they're doing much more navigation, they're engaging in much more spatial activity, and we see an increase in hippocampal volume, providing more evidence of this link between the hippocampus and space. Now, what happens in humans? Well, we wondered um, whether we would see the same kind of volume differences in humans who engaged in a lot of navigation. So what I did back in the early 2000s was, being in London, thought I have the exact people I need to study, licensed London taxi drivers. They have to learn the layout of 25,000 streets, thousands of places of interest. They have incredibly difficult, stringent exams they have to take. This is known as acquiring the knowledge. So what I did, and there was numerous studies, but I'll show you this one, we just looked to see what happened to the volume of their hippocampus. Here we compared them to London bus drivers, because they too are driving around London, but on constrained routes. But they're still, you know, taking in the traffic fumes, dealing with stroppy customers and so on. Um, but the taxi drivers have a much bigger sort of mental map in their heads. And what you can see is that the back part of the hippocampus, the posterior hippocampus, was much bigger in the taxi drivers compared to the bus drivers. But interestingly, the front part of the hippocampus the anterior was smaller in the taxi drivers. So the taxi driver's story is one of gain, but also loss. But they do have a bigger volume in their posterior hippocampus. Now this was a cross-sectional study. So what we then did was we got drivers as they were just starting to acquire the knowledge. So the trainee taxi drivers. If you ever go to London, you might see them on their mopeds with sort of clipboards in the front where they're learning all of the streets. It takes about three or four years. So in this longitudinal study, this is what we found. This is the volume of the posterior hippocampus. These are qualified, people who went on to qualify. Here's their volume at time one and here's their volume of time two, wasn't the case for controls. So you can see that within the same people, having acquired the knowledge has effectively increased the volume of their posterior hippocampus. And this study is also interesting because it shows that the adult human brain can be plastic, it can change when you engage in trying to remember for example, here, a lot of information. And it also cements the idea that the human hippocampus is also very interested in spatial processing. Now that's looking at a correlation uh, with structure, but what about function? Well, here we run into a slight problem because you're trying to take the real world, this is Oxford Street on a Saturday, and you're trying to study it when somebody's head is immobilized in an MRI scanner. So what are you going to do? Well, we've been using um, virtual reality. Now, we were very lucky at the time we set out to do these studies that Sony, as part of a video game called The Getaway, had simulated at like millions of pounds worth of expense 
central London in huge detail. So we were able to come along and we were able to use this simulation of central London, which we had people navigating around while we were scanning their brains. So what we found, and this is just a kind of little summary movie I'll show, what you'll see here is they're driving around Piccadilly Circus, happen to be driving a black cab. Um, here is the map, you'll see where they're going. Here you will see appearing the thoughts they were having at the time. And here you'll see the brain areas that were activated. And you have to watch out right at the start because the hippocampus comes on when they're planning their route, their initial planning of the route. So the task here was you pretended you were a taxi driver and you had to take a customer somewhere. So let's start this and look out very, very much at the start to see the hippocampus. So there's the, please take me to Peter Street. There's the hippocampus coming on. And now he's coasting along. And now he says he's going to take a um, slight detour. And oh, I can't take the detour. It's, my, it's blocked. So then he's coming down here. And he's thinking, oh, this is the cerebellum, part of the motor part of the brain activated when he's turning the corner. He's now going to see some very colourful shops, so you get beautiful activity in the visual cortex. And then we're coming down again, and he's trying to see where, yeah, I should see that. Oh, there it is. And then, then we have a bit of road rage there at the end. So again, this shows the hippocampus very much involved but a lot of other brain areas too. So it's a kind of nice choreography of the navigation process. Now, again, around this time, we came across this patient, patient TT. And he had hippocampal damage, both sides. But for the 40 years before his illness, he was a licensed London taxi driver. So what we did was we put him in virtual London along with some control taxi drivers who were healthy and but had a similar amount of experience as him. And we got them to run some routes through London. So I'm just going to show you on the map an example of this. So here you can see, I hope, uh, a little red route. And this is going from St. Paul's Cathedral to the Bank of England. Now this is a really quick route. All the taxi drivers know how to do this route. And all the controls followed this route. But poor TT, he goes off all around the houses. And he never manages to get there. And he kind of sticks to the major routes, as you can see here, the yellow routes. Um, but he doesn't get there. And he's very frustrated because he knows they're quite close to each other. And he can do lots of other you know, quite impressive spatial tasks. But he can't, when he's in situ, find his way between two places that he would have known, like the back of his hand, before he had his hippocampal lesions. So now we have a situation where we have the hippocampus being very involved in recalling our past experiences. Now we need it for navigating around in the world. How do we reconcile those two functions? Well. About a decade ago, we made things even more complicated because we tested a set of patients with hippocampal damage who couldn't remember the past, couldn't find their way around, but we also discovered they couldn't imagine the future. So they were completely impaired at imagining the future. In fact, they couldn't imagine any kind of scene or event. Now, interestingly, they could imagine single isolated objects, but they couldn't imagine scenes. And let me just give you a brief example of that. So they had to imagine you're, you're lying on a white sandy beach in a beautiful tropical bay. Now the patient is on the top here. Well, he says, as for seeing, I can't really, apart from just sky, I can hear the sound of seagulls and of the sea. But he goes on and we're probing him to see if he can come out with anything. Really, all I can see is the color of the blue sky and the white sand. 
No, it's like, can you see anything else? No, it's like I'm floating. And I compare that to the control underneath, which is all the detail. It's very hot and the sun is beating down. The sand underneath me is almost invariably hot. And so it goes on. So the patients are very impaired, as you can see from this graph, at recalling or imagining, I should say, any kind of scene, including scenes of the future. And when we ask the patients, you know, what they know they have this problem. And we say, well, what do you think is the problem? And this is honestly what one of the patients said. He said, there's no scene in front of me here. It's frustrating because I feel like there should be. I feel like I'm listening to the radio instead of watching it on the TV. I'm trying to imagine different things happening, but there's no visual scene opening out in front of me. So then we went on to study this in another way. So if I gave you this picture and I asked you to look at it for 15 seconds and then I took it away and immediately asked you to draw it from memory, you would probably draw something like this. This isn't been drawn by patient, this is a healthy control and what you can see is they've included a lot more space and scene than was present in the original drawing. So they've imagined what's beyond the view. And this is known as boundary extension. This is something we all do. It's ubiquitous, it's automatic, and it's specific to scenes. And this is the way it works. So if I give you this picture um, of the cat, what you will automatically do, and you're not even aware you're doing it, is you will imagine more of that picture than was actually shown to you. So what you have in your head is this slightly bigger picture of the cat. So that when I come along and show you this picture and say, is this picture closer, further away, or the same as the picture I showed you originally, most people will say it's closer up because you're comparing this to what's in your head, which is this. But in fact, these pictures are both the same. So when we give people tasks, for example, here, you see a very simple scene very quickly, and then you're shown another picture and you're asked, is it the same? Is it further away or is it closer up? In fact, in every case, they were the same picture in every trial. But the controls made this error, and they more often than not said, oh, it's closer up. The patients on the other hand, didn't make that error very much. So here we have this paradoxical situation where we have these amnesic patients doing better on a memory task than the healthy controls because they have no ability to imagine what's beyond the view. And this is one of those memory errors that I was talking about. Why would, why would the memory system make this error? It seems like a really obvious error, right? But it's really useful to try and imagine what's beyond the view, what's around the corner. In terms of survival, that's a good thing to be trying to do. And so our memory system does that. It just extrapolates a bit more, predict what might be coming up. The patients can't do that. They don't know what's around the corner. They can't imagine it. They don't know what's behind them. If it's not in front of them, then they can't process it. And we can see that even in this drawing task. So again, people were shown these pictures and immediately had to draw them. And this is what the controls draw. You see all the extra scene that's shown. Whereas the patients, in fact, draw much more accurate uh, pictures because they don't or can't imagine what's beyond the view. And this boundary extension involves imagining scenes. And the patients with their hippocampal damage can't do that. We've also gone on to do lots of other studies involving fMRI, showing if you look at scenes or if you imagine scenes, then your hippocampus is uh, activated. So all of this led us a number of years ago to propose this new theory. 
and it proposes that the hippocampus, one of its main jobs is to construct scene imagery. And tasks that require or could benefit from constructing this scene imagery will be the ones that the hippocampus relies on, or that rely on the hippocampus. And this won't be just in the context of memory, but across all of cognition. So, for example, it is, yes, these, this ability to construct imagery is a vital ingredient of autobiographical memory, but possibly also thinking about the future and also uh, spatial navigation. And if you think about it, if you're imagining the future, what are you going to do after you leave this talk? It, it often involves scenes. They feature prominently. And scenes are a very efficient way of packaging information. Now, in this theory, we also sort of predicted that that hippocampal damage would impact upon other things that we think involve scene imagery. Uh, for example, uh, mind wandering. So now, if you think about mind wandering, which I'm sure you're not doing right now, um, mind wandering, it has been estimated we spend up to 50% of our time mind wandering. And again, it's a good thing. It's very important for problem solving, also for creativity. Now, it can have a downside because it can actually make um, situations like depression worse if people are ruminating constantly on, um, on their situation. But we wondered here, what would happen if we had patients with hippocampal damage? Would they mind wander? And so what we did, and this is the work of uh, Connie McCormick, when the patients come to see us, they usually come for three or four days and they stay with us and we do lots of work with them. But at various points in the, in the time when, you know, things would just be a little bit quieter that, Connie would say to the patient, what are you thinking about right now? And then we would note what they were thinking about. And when we did that, we found that, yes, patients do mind wander and they mind wander as much as the controls do so they definitely engage in mind wandering but what are they mind wandering about is the question and here we show um, this is the present this is the past this is the future what you can see the patients are the red dots and you can see that they are not thinking about the past hardly at all significantly less than the controls they're thinking much more they're in the present. But even though they're in the present, there's a difference in what they're thinking about. So often, controls, UI, we're thinking about different scenarios. I'll, I'll walk down Dawson Street, I might do this, I might meet that person. The patients weren't engaging in anything like that uh, compared to the controls. The other interesting feature was their form of their mind wandering. And you can see here that scenes are in green. These are the controls. And you can see the controls, really a lot of their mind wandering involved scene imagery. That wasn't the case for the patients. They hardly at all used scene imagery. And so here we have a really pervasive form of thinking. And we can see the effect that the hippocampal lesion has, in particular, I would argue, on the construction of this scene imagery that facilitates uh, the mind wandering. Now related to mind wandering or daydreaming, as you could also call this, is night dreaming. So the question I get asked a lot is do patients, amnesic patients with hippocampal damage, do they dream? Now one way you can look at dreaming is you can uh, ask people the next morning, did you dream? What did you dream about? Now, of course, in this case, the patients could well have dreamed, but they might forget that they dreamed. And that, in fact, happens to us all occasionally. So what we did uh, was we uh, used what's called a provoked awakening uh, protocol. And people were uh, asleep at home. And what we would do, kind of rather meanly, would uh, wake them up at certain points in the night and say, what are you dreaming about? 
Um, this made us very popular, as you can imagine. Um, we also sampled throughout the night, and we sampled during REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, which is when a lot of dreaming occurs. But dreaming also occurs in other stages of sleep, non-REM sleep. So we sampled across a lot of it. So here's how it worked. We had. Um, Dina Spano and Gloria Pizzamiglio were in one of the sitting room usually. They were monitoring the brain activity uh, on an EEG. And then when they were in certain stages of sleep, a little tone would be played. And um, then the person would wake up very gently, not, you know, not like alarm bells or anything, just a very gentle tone. And then Gloria would say, what are you thinking about? What thoughts were running through your head just before you were woken up? And then the person would um, give a description of their dream, and uh, we would record that and scored it later. So when we did that, we found that the patients dream much less than um, the matched control participants. So there really one patient didn't dream at all, and the others had just very few dreams. And these are patients who are well able to, you know, you, you know, it's not a, a problem that they just can't speak or they can't talk about anything. They just didn't have anything to report on. And those few dreams that they had were much less vivid and also were much less kind of story-like, much less episodic than those of the um, control participants. So here we have yet another instance where the hippocampus is compromising something, something that's in fact very important for memory. Memory consolidation, uh, a lot of it occurs during sleep, and many people think that dreams contribute to that memory consolidation. So the patients are losing out on that process. Now, I've been telling you that I think this is got a lot to do with using scene imagery. But I haven't shown you any really direct evidence, so to speak, of that. So what we've recently done is looked at the strategies people use when they're, for example, recalling past experiences. So we did a big study, over 200 people, healthy people, and we ran them through loads of different cognitive tasks. And then when we were done, we went back through each task with them and try to discern exactly what strategy they used to do the task. And we have a huge amount of data, but I'm just going to present a, a very simple overview. Uh, and what we found was when you're recalling the past autobiographical memory, green is a strategy involving scene imagery, blue is other visual imagery, and red is just other types of strategies, like verbal strategies. And what you can see is for the vast majority of people, they are using scene imagery to help them recall past events. So it's definitely the case that this is a very prominent part of the cognition associated with recalling the past. And interestingly, it's also the same when you're imagining the future, scene imagery as well features very prominently and significant also when you're engaged in a, a, a spatial navigation task. The other thing we wondered was, okay, these people are using scene imagery or people generally are using it. Does it actually confer any advantage on you? You know, is it worth using scene imagery? Um, and the answer is yes, it is. So you can see here that people who, uh, the light green here are the scenes, and you can see people who use scene imagery did better on memory tasks. They recalled more details. They had a more a sense of uh, vividness of their uh, autobiographical memories when they imagined the memories in scenes. This is also the case when they're imagining the future and even when they're engaged in a spatial navigation task. And so, again, this is really kind of direct evidence that scene imagery seems to play a central role in helping us recall the past and other things also. So just to summarize where we are then, um, 
I'm suggesting that these findings blur the distinctions between the past, the present, the future, and even between memory and cognition more widely. I think that suggests that there's a deeper fundamental process that we need to explain in order to understand autobiographical memories. I think that that process is reconstruction and that the hippocampus constructs, reconstructs the past event in the absence of the original memory trace. And I think this remit of the hippocampus, you know, goes beyond memory. It's necessary for memory, but also for lots of other things, aspects of thinking that we do. And I think that scene imagery is particularly crucial. And I would go to so far as to say, I think that scenes may be the currency of cognition. And when we lose them, the ability to form scene imagery, then the effects can be far reaching and potentially devastating. You lose the past, your present isn't the same. You're not dreaming, you're not mind wandering in the same way. You can't imagine the future. You can't imagine what's around the corner. You're living literally just with what's in front of your eyes. And that is a very devastating way to be. So I think one way we need to study and get to the heart of memory is to understand this reconstruction process. And this may already have some implications for rehabilitation and memory aids. So for example, one common way that people try to help those with memory problems is to get them to imagine different scenarios and uh, use all kinds of visualization aids. But if you have hippocampal damage, then that sort of strategy is never really going to work because you simply can't do it. But for the future, we need to go much further than that. We need to understand the neural mechanisms supporting autobiographical memories and scene construction and how precisely they break down in patients. And I'm just going to end by um, thinking about the future. So one thing I haven't told you about the hippocampus is that it's made up of different parts or subfields. And we've absolutely no idea how the autobiographical memories are supported by these different um, parts of the hippocampus. Um, one way we can progress this is by having even more powerful MRI scanners. And so now we have available to us these ultra high field seven Tesla MRI scanners. And the magnetic strength of these scanners is more than 140,000 times stronger than the magnetic field of the Earth. These are really strong magnets. And you can see here, maybe, that this is a conventional scanner doing fMRI. This is a 7T scanner. We get much better pictures. Here also, there's a little blue square there, believe it or not. Um, and what we can see, and that's already very small, you know, it can be sub-millimeter. But with something like seven Tesla MRI, we can get down to that sort of spatial precision. That means we can really start to understand the subfields of the hippocampus and the cortex. The cortex is made up of different layers, and they all do different things to help you remember the past. Now, in humans, with these scanners, we can start to understand the computations that are going on in the layers of the cortex. We're very excited because we recently got a 7T scanner in my center. This is Queen Square. This is the scanner being lifted over our center into the back. Um, it was too big to fit through any door at the front. Um, we were all holding our breaths when this was being lifted over. Um, we put a little GoPro camera on top of the uh, crane. It wasn't that someone was sitting up there taking pictures. Um, so that got delivered in May. And it's already operational. And here's our center director, Kathy Price, having the very first scan in the scanner. Now, nobody has ever looked at autobiographical memory using 7T MRI. So now we'll be able to start looking at it with precision like never before. We're also going to be driving forwards in our looking at single neurons using patients who are implanted for uh, their epilepsy. Again, very little work done looking at what happens at the neuron level in humans when you're recalling your past. 
we don't know. And the final thing I'll just end on is uh, going back to MEG. This is the MRG scanner, the, the sort of hairdryer affair. And as I said, there, uh, there are fixed sensors in this um, scanner and it needs a lot of helium to keep it cool and helium is expensive and often quite hard to get. Um, but you lose sensitivity with distance and so and also the person has to remain incredibly still and this reels out a lot of people like wriggly little children who don't like to be in brain scanners and certain patient populations who just can't keep still perhaps they have tremors or something like that. So colleagues in my centre working with the University of Nottingham have developed a new type of MEG and it's a wearable MEG and it works using optically, optically pumped magnetometers or OPMs and we're calling it OPMEG. People can move around, be tested for hours at a time while we record neural signatures with millisecond precision from the whole brain. Here's the original prototype. Uh, you can see here we have someone with a sort of scanner cast on their head and the OPMs are slotted in. Uh, and that person can move their head, which would be catastrophic normally for image quality in other uh, types of imaging. Uh, here's a proof of principle here. Somebody's doing a finger tapping task, but she's also drinking a cup of tea, moving her head around. Here she's even playing ping pong while she's doing the task and we still get beautiful uh, picking up really accurate activity from the motor cortex. Now the sensors have gotten even smaller. These are the sensors now. These are the uh, little caps we put them in and um, recently we've been able to show that using this new type of technique people were moving their heads but also imagining scenes and we could record the activity beautifully from the hippocampus. Now the really interesting prospect with this OpMeg is its combination with virtual reality. So again with our colleagues in Nottingham, we've recently shown that it's possible to combine sort of this is a head mounted display in Oculus Rift and we've been able to record activity, albeit here from the back of the brain, the visual cortex in a very simple virtual environment. So it's possible to do, but of course we want to do it on a much more complex scale. So we want more complex virtual reality, interactive, immersive, where people can move around and we can make them have experiences in the virtual world. So we can record the formation of an autobiographical memory and then we can track its neural signature over time. And we can also put patients in this um, situation and try to understand where it is that the memory trace is breaking down. Where, when and why is that memory not persisting? The other exciting prospect with this is that we can scan anyone with OpMeg. This little chap is two years old. He was very happily scanned um, very recently. Um, this is with the old sensors, so they're even lighter and smaller now. And one of my um, research fellows is actually planning to study little babies from about two months old. We can pop a little cap on. And why that's exciting is that we can look at how the brain's memory system develops because that will give us insights into how it works. How does it come online? When does it come online? How does it work? So that is uh, very exciting for us also. So I will end by saying it's a very exciting time to be investigating memory and its brain basis and how it breaks down. Also, um, I've given you just uh, you know, I've sc barely scratched the surface. I haven't told you about all the other brain areas, the amazing work that's done in non-humans, what happens to memories over time because they change. Um, but hopefully I've given you a flavor of the sorts of ways, these new ways we're thinking about memory and the direction we're going in to try and unravel the anatomy of memory. So I'll leave it there and say thank you very much.
Professor McGuire, thank you very much. You've given us an enormous amount of neurostimulation, I think. And I doubt if there was any mind wandering at all during that uh, discourse. Uh, I would now like to invite Professor Shane O'Mara from Trinity College uh, and also a member of the Royal Irish Academy. Shane is a professor of neurosciences. To respond, please. Sorry, I'll just take a moment. So uh, it's great to be here, and it's a great honour to follow Eleanor, uh, who's done such amazing work, uh, who's done such amazing work over the years. Now, what I'd like to do is change gear a little, and I'm going to ask you a question, and I'd like you to respond. How many of you have seen this picture before? Put, just put your hand up. Okay, that's excellent. Now, I'm going to tell you something amazing. You have not seen that picture before. Uh, what I've shown you is a mirror-reversed image of the most famous portrait on the planet, one that you've seen many, many times, and you've probably been to the Louvre and had a look at it. And uh, that leads us to an interesting paradox where memory is concerned. That being exposed to material doesn't mean that you're going to learn anything necessarily about that material. So let's uh, play the game again. Um, can you describe a 20 euro note? Now, this used to be an easy question uh, before we all started paying by tap. Uh, but these are valuable things. You can buy services with them. You can do lots of things with them. Now, what color is a 20 euro note? Blue. Does it have structures on it? What are they? Bridges? Buildings? Does it have a face? This is remarkable, <laughs> isn't it? Well, there's a 20 euro note. Uh, and then you get this burst of recognition. OK, let's, let's try again. Uh, what's the, it is the second most valuable planet, company on the planet. This is an Apple, clearly. Uh, Amazon, I think, being the most valuable. How many people here own an Apple product? Just put up your hand. Excellent. OK. Now, can you tell me which is the company's logo? Now, remember, these are very valuable products. We know that people with own mobile phones are rarely more than a meter from their phone. You've spent maybe 600 euros buying it, and it's got lovely brushed aluminium, all of those kinds of things. Now, who votes for this logo? Hands up. Okay, a couple. Who for this one? A few more. Who for this one? A few more. This one. And a few. And this one. And a lot. And for this one, a couple. Now, uh, if you were asked to draw the logo and to rate your confidence in your own recall, you might end up with something that looks like this. <laughs> and whether you're an Apple user or not, there's little relationship between your confidence and your recall. Um, this is the actual logo. The bite is on the right-hand side, and uh, the stem is leaning to the right as you, as you look at it. So there's a big problem. Um, you could call it attentional saturation. You could call it learned irrelevance. There's lots of, lots of names that you could give to it. But these are commonly used household or objects of everyday life, and our recall for them is very poor. Now, just to test you, have I shown you this before? Yeah, loads of nodding heads. I didn't. I showed you that one. <coughs> okay, so that was 30 seconds ago. So when Eleanor talked about the fallibility of memory, this is re these are really good examples of uh, how good we are at not remembering. Uh, just because it feels familiar doesn't mean that it has been learned. And... Uh, I think this is the real key point when you're thinking about how memories can change people and how we engage in advertising campaigns and all the rest of it. Just exposing people to information does not ensure that people learn anything about that information. And we know this well now, and I hope you'll agree with me, that at least for the examples I've given you, that this is correct, that using and retrieving information actually is more important. I'm sure until I presented the image of the Mona Lisa, you haven't thought about it 
um, and you don't use the Mona Lisa in everyday life. Although you should be a bit more worried by the apple, because uh, it was so so recent. Now, what does this all tell us? Well, it tells us something, and I think it should be obvious from the, the talk that we've just heard, um, that modern neuroscience has taught us a lot about how the brain functions where memory is concerned. Uh, we now are starting to understand the processes uh, that are responsible for the laying down of memories within the brain, and we now have a good idea for uh, around how different brain regions uh, are implicated in memory. Uh, hippocampal formation, which Eleanor has mentioned, but lots and lots of other re regions as well, prefrontal cortex, and even a part of the brain that I'm particularly partial to, the anterior thalamus, uh, is very uh, importantly involved in, in memory. Um, what does this mean for the future? Well, it means actually something really remarkable. Um, uh, on the bottom here, you have a brain that has had Alzheimer's disease, and uh, this is a brain uh, which is normal. And uh, we can now start to think, we're not anywhere close to this yet, but uh, we can start to think about how we can prevent diseases of the aging brain, and perhaps even uh, consider or, or think about how we can prevent diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, or just the normal decline in memory that might come uh, with aging. And there may even be ethical issues to consider. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard about smart pills and students using these things to boost exam performance. Um, they don't work, uh, remarkably enough, but nonetheless, uh, students do use them. Uh, so these kinds of questions are going to become much more to the fore over the, the coming years. So I think there's a great message of hope here. Uh, a, a, a rational and cumulative science of memory is possible. Uh, and it's, it's one that we have a fair grasp on now compared to even uh, 10 or 15 years ago. However, there are also other problems. There are lots of myths about learning and memory, uh, and these persist, and they're consequential in all sorts of ways. Uh, so I'm just going to talk about a few of those for a moment. Uh, there are lots of what sound like plausible ideas that have seeped into the popular culture about how memory works, uh, which happen to be wrong. So here's one from just three days ago. Uh, this is a presentation at the Peter Drucker Foundation. So Peter Drucker is probably the preeminent organizational theorist of the, the last 100 years, along with uh, Herbert Simon. And in this talk, there are two charts presented on learning. Um, I'll go in a bit closer. Uh, this one on the left here tells you that uh, you've engaged in 60% of all the material ever learned by the age of four. And you have a retention pyramid. And you find these things asserted as if they are true, uh, especially in domains that have little to do with neuroscience or little to do with the psychology of learning and memory. Uh, and uh, this is at a, a major management meeting. Uh, this is what actually happens. Uh, this is a, a reminiscence curve. If you take people in their 50s uh, and you ask them to recall events over their past decades of their lives, look at the years between zero and about 10. They trend to zero. Um, you do not remember because much of your early life because of the pervasive phenomenon of infantile amnesia. So a simple check of the literature would have indicated to this person that uh, their uh, uh, assertions were in fact wrong. And of course, if you do some sanity checks on it yourself, you learn to play the piano perhaps at the age of 11. Um, and uh, the information is being presented in, in a a lecture at which the assertion is that you will lose 95% of the information presented, which is quite astonishing. Um, there's something else called learning styles. Uh, you find these in human resources departments. Uh, you find them in schools. And uh, there are about 70 theories of learning styles. And they make assertions that people are auditory learners, they're kinesthetic learners, they're visual learners. Uh, you do not find, you did not hear Eleanor mention learning styles, uh, and there's a very good reason for that. Um, when you look at the overlap between learning styles and the neuroscience of learning, this is what you get. Uh, there's learning styles there, there's the neuroscience of learning, and if it were possible to make that invisible, uh, I would have done. Um, and when you look at the literature, um, what you find when you look at the major meta-analyses, uh, you find that all of the data show that there is no link between learning styles and achievement, and any empirical data that does exist flatly contradicts the learning styles hypothesis. So this idea that this is how our memory works is not correct. 
but it is one that is widely propagated in society and has been since the 1970s. It's kind of this zombie idea uh, that will not die. Now, so repeat after me, uh, in case you've forgotten, learning styles are a myth. Now, there are lots of other myths about the brain. Uh, brain training, I'm sure you've all heard about brain training. Um, it does not work. Uh, spending lots of time playing games to improve your cognition will improve your ability to play those games, but it doesn't generalize to anything else. Um, did you know that you only use 10% of your brain? This is the piece that you use. I am joking. <laughs> uh, this is not true. Um, and you've probably heard uh, the story about people being left-brained or right-brained, and your left brain is supposed to be rational and objective, and your right brain is supposed to be imaginative and creative and supposed supporting memory. What if I told you you're half right? Uh, you are whole-brained, you are not left-brained or right-brained. Now, do myths about memory matter? Yes, they do. Uh, when you do surveys of teachers, uh, when you survey athletics coaches and lots of other people, uh, you find that learning styles, uh, they believe that learning styles exist and they attempt to incorporate them into sports training, they attempt to incorporate them into the classroom. These are not Irish uh, teachers, thankfully. Um, Similarly, when you survey police officers about what they believe about memory, you find that they buy into things that patently aren't correct. Uh, eyewitnesses are always the most reliable source of case-related information. 63% of police officers asked this question in the US and Canada agree that that statement is true. Uh, if you were a, the victim of a violent crime, your memory for the perpetrator's face would be perfect. Um, about 65% of police officers believe that statement to be true, even though the proportion of people who remember the attacker's face trends to zero uh, because people focus on the weapon they're being attacked with, not the face of the person that they're being attacked by. Uh, we have to slay these myths, and we can do it, um, because we now have a rational uh, biology, a rational psychology of memory, which uh, didn't exist before, um, we now l know lots about the brain systems and subsystems that are involved in memory. And we know this in very large part because of the amazing work that Eleanor has been doing over the past 20 years. Thank you. Thank you very much.